Into the second half of the 2021 MotoGP season and we've just had the first of the Austrian Red Bull Ring races. It's always something at Red Bull Ring that there's always something that comes up. We had a fantastic race finish there last year in one of the Grand Prix. We had a terrifying big accident. But this year, we've had a debut winner in MotoGP in the shape of Jorge Martin. I mean, wow, what a what a race what pressure he held. As usual, we'll start with what jumps into your mind. I'll start with Valentin. You're first on my screen. Shoot. Yeah, I'm just really glad that Pramac finally has a win because it felt really weird given their consistent level of performance over the past couple of years that they remained winless and thankfully that's that's over and done with. Simon Patterson, what hits you? Uh, under its current guise, the Red Bull Ring is not a suitable venue for a MotoGP race, and to hear Red Bull saying they can't afford to fix it is insane. Oh dear. Um, for me, it's the maturity and the way he was in Park Ferme after holding the pressure, holding his head high, recovering from that injury, the emotion of it and the way that he can carry himself at relatively such a young age. That's what struck me yesterday about the Grand Prix. How good was that ride in your eyes, though, Simon? What, what struck you trackside? So the, the reason that I don't say that that, is, uh, that that doesn't make it into my list of things that are a surprise for the weekend is because I've known for a long time that Jorge Martin had that ability. Uh, this is a kid that we've been watching since 2017, that we've been tipping since 2017 as the next big thing. And it's all come together pretty much exactly the way we thought we would, uh, it would. I don't think anyone's surprised to see him win this season. Um, I don't think anyone's surprised to see him do it here. And even if it, you know, it might have been a surprise given form through the weekend. I think if you'd look back at the start of the year and, and said, you know, where is he going to try and win? This would be one of the places. And I think that what we saw afterwards is really the the perfect demonstration of Jorge Martin, the person, um, as well as the writer. He is a super calm guy. He is very collected. He has got it together. He knows how to speak to the media. He he's the full package. There, there is so much more to being a MotoGP world champion than just being fast on a motorbike. And, and that's the reason that we're looking at Pedro Acosta and saying that he is the next big thing now because he is the full package. Jorge Martin is exactly like that. I think he demonstrated that yesterday on the bike and off it. Yeah. If, if Simon didn't need a Martin epiphany this year, I did. I, you know, coming into the season, having only had sort of a surface level impression of his performances in uh in moto three and moto two i thought he had a good cv i thought he looked quite good all throughout but i didn't think he was like i didn't think this was a mark marquez level cv or a maverick vinales level cv i thought it was maybe a bit a step below but sunday was not a surprise in like in the same way when brad binder won the race last year his first race i was shocked because it felt like it came out of absolutely nowhere from the prior two weekends but when jorge martin won the race this sunday what well, we already had the qatar race from pole to the podium that he was not that far off of winning that he maintained consistent pace all throughout and already at that point it was clear that this this kind of thing is coming it's coming pretty soon once he's able to get back to to full fitness so yeah, I was pretty much 
Qatar made it obvious this was going to happen. It was, it was a fantastic ride. Not particularly surprising. Although, you know, maybe you'd fancy Mir in that duel, but it was it was always going to be pretty close and Martin did a great job. Just to recap, as Val has touched on and Simon as well, you know, he, he'd recovered from a terrifying crash that happened at the third race of the season in Portugal. And psychologically, you're put back. So, you know, all the pictures on his Instagram, he's in hospital, he's got the cast on, he's trying to get better. And then to win in the same season, for me, has always been a big... Wow. You know, Valentina did it when he broke his leg in 2010. He won before the end of the year. And it's belief in their own mind on the cooling down lap. I haven't forgotten how to do it. We're, what, 10 or 11 races into the season. But it's worth noting that this is only his sixth. You know, He missed four races. He sat at home and watched them. Um, he broke, he needed surgery in three different parts of his body to have metalwork installed into it. You know, someone asked him earlier about his, or yesterday about his future plans. And he said, well, the first thing we're going to do after the season is go for surgery to get all the metal taken out. You know, because there's plates and pins everywhere. It was a big crash. It is one of the biggest crashes we've seen this year. And uh, it just hasn't phased him at all. As we've seen in the past, this isn't, you know, it isn't the first time He's had a big injury and bounced back really quickly from it. He did it in Moto3 the year he won the title. Um, I remember him turning up to uh, Thailand, barely able to ride because his massage therapist had trapped a nerve in his arm and he lost use of his arm for, for like three days and had to wear a special brace. And, you know, he's been through the wars a little bit. And, and I think the reason that he copes with it so well, whenever you hear him talk about his story is because he's been through the war since day one. He has not had an easy route to where he is today. You know, he, he's told the story before and he told it again this weekend about how when he was 12 years old, he was selected for Red Bull Rookies. And the the selection for Red Bull Rookies is literally the only reason he's here today because his family had run out of money. They couldn't keep affording to send him motorbike racing. He got this golden ticket into a series that you don't pay to ride. And it's led to here. You know, every step of the way has been tough for this kid. Um, so it's it's not a surprise that he's handled adversity so well this season. I think it's, I think it's also an example for every MotoGP manufacturer to sign everybody who's ever ridden uh, Mahindra in Moto3. So that seems to be basically the golden ticket at this point. Everybody who's dragged that bike up the order in that series seems to be something special. Absolutely. Absolutely. You look at the guys that, that went to Mahindra and won, and the, yeah, they are the entire next generation. And that leads us into the fact that Pramac have finally hit the top step. We always love the, quote, underdog it's the paddock thing, isn't it, guys, that the satellite bike is never going to win the race. But we've had a satellite victory last year. We've had for, for Yamaha and KTM. And now we've had a satellite victory this year for the first time for uh, for Ducati. Uh, they've been in the championship since Jesus was a carpenter, it seems. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's a long time. They got very close. Alex Barros had a good run. 2007, knocking on the door, not only podium, but, but victory, leading Grand Prix. Uh, Miller, obviously. And now, finally, they've done it. Petrucci came close at Silverstone and got robbed by Valentino at the flag. The wet race. Was it not Aston? Yeah, the wet was race. It, it was both. It yeah. was both. Oh, it was Petrucci yeah. at the front. Yeah. It's got to be a wet race, Val. Keep up. Yeah. So, 
I'm pulling your leg. So, yeah, I'm Mr. Campanotti, Paolo Campanotti, the big guy, literally. You know, he's charismatic. Um, he's very good with Ducati. He's very straight. He pays his bills, and he mm -hmm. continues to pay his bills. And also, he has launched Pramac into the into the bigger world. How many times have you been somewhere that's not a MotoGP circuit and Primo seen a Pramac generator and gone, ah, oh, MotoGP team? You know, how else would we know about them? He's spreading the word, and now the top step of the place. It's utter fairy tale. The whole thing. Yeah, well, you know the the. The Pramac team is an it is entirely a project of love. You, all you have to do to figure that out is look at their corporate structure. They are not a race team sponsored by Pramac. Pramac Racing is a division of Pramac, the generator company, because they love racing motorbikes so much that they've just made it a part of the team. They are such a happy, friendly bunch in the paddock. They, you know, there's always. If there's a party in the paddock during normal non-COVID times on a Thursday night, it's Pramac hosting. You know, the karaoke nights in Pramac Hospitality are quite legendary. They bought a piano whenever uh, for hospitality whenever Yoad Zarco turned up in MotoGP just for karaoke nights. That's the sort of team they are. So to see that bunch um, finally succeeding after so many close calls, yeah, couldn't be happier for them. I think it's a big vindication for Ducati too, because it was it was last year that we really saw the the big satellite boom, as 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 Toby pointed out, and obviously LCR has had wins before that. But you know, this year the gap between the satellites and the the main works teams has has clearly increased, and yet you know, and yet Pramac is there, and Pramac has been there, and it's been reaping the rewards of a close uh, close collaboration with Ducati, and obviously the fact that the lineup is. It's great. It's fantastic. Feels a bit weird that it wasn't Zarco who got the first win, to me anyway. Surely his has to be on the horizon, not too distant the future. But I'm really glad Pramax finally won, because it was, it was weird that they haven't. And so, finally. With the, the entire satellite team model that we have right now, where factories put satellite bike put factory bikes into satellite teams, was invented by Ducati for Pramac. Yeah, they're the one team that hasn't reaped the rewards of it until now. So yeah, that vindicates, like you say, Val, everything Ducati does. It also vindicates what Ducati does, going aggressively after Jorge Martin last year and stealing them away from KTM. And I thought you were going to say Simon. It also vindicates the manufacturers having four works bikes, not two and two, that used to be the case. Absolutely. They, they, they might be two and 1.999 spec just underneath, but even so, that's what they've got to do. They get more data. It's a win, win, win. Everybody raises on the same tide. And so It's something that we'll probably come on to uh, later in the podcast, but at a time when the one factory who aren't doing this can't find riders to fill their seats... You have to think that a large part of that is because Yamaha won't follow the model. But we'll come on to the Petronas-Yamaha situation a little bit later, I figure. Well, Jorge Martin, Pramac Ducati, Ducati Bologna, the whole Italian story, it's been nothing short of a mega journey and they've come out top step of the podium. So, the Austrian race... The first one of the two that we are having in 2021, we had Jorge Martin winning first over the line. Second, a glimpse of the 2020 MotoGP world champion, Juan Mir. They've upped their spec. They finally got the whole launch system, the, the squat system, should I say, on the rear. 
Simon, he's 51 points back of Quattararo, who continues to lead the World Championship. We've got eight races remaining. Can he do it? 200 points still on the table? I came to the circuit this morning to get my PCR test done for next week's race. And uh, I bumped into a member of the Mir crew um, who is probably listening to the podcast, but I won't name him, um, who who had a, a, a bit of a hangover uh, because he said that they celebrated last night as big as they celebrated last year when he won the championship. That this really feels like just the relief last night, that this feels like the turning point. This feels like the moment where things have turned around for them, where they're back to where they need to be, where the season is kicking off in style. Yeah, it's 51 points. It absolutely is a big margin, but it's not an insurmountable margin. They probably need a bit of bad luck for Fabio Quattararo. They probably can't do it entirely on their own. Um, but you know, this is MotoGP and bad luck can happen. Things can turn around really quickly. Uh, you know, we, we, we went into yesterday looking at a, a very, very unpredictable weather forecast at the Red Bull Ring, where, let's be honest, if it had poured down, Fabio Quattararo would not have been on the podium. But there's every possibility that Juan Mir still would have been. We go from here to another race at the Red Bull Ring where the weather forecast is exactly the same. Then we go to Silverstone. You know, no jokes, please. Anything can happen with weather, with you know, with all sorts of factors. We saw last year that Quadraro looked really strong for the first half of the season, and then had a huge blip in the second half. Don't get me wrong; I think the Fabio Quadraro we have this year is a very, very different character from the one that had that blip last year. But, like I said, anything can happen. That's the unpredictable nature of MotoGP. I don't think the title race has swung. But I think it's a lot more open than it was 24 hours ago. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it would have been a lot more open if it did rain. And the fact that it didn't rain, in fact, is probably the, the big significant thing for me. Uh, 51 points. Can, like, let's, let's put the 51 points in context. Can we see Mir outscoring Quartararo head-to-head over six races? Yeah, sure. No. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, you've asked me a question. Yeah. It was a no from me. Simon has the casting vote. Yeah, I, I think uh, we can. But that means okay. that the other two races that we have set aside, Fabio has to not finish and Mir has to win. Yeah. And I think there will be a concern to the fact that he was really good at this track last year too and looked like he was going to win. And he, he didn't really look like he was going to win today, like maybe for a bit, but he couldn't beat a, a, a rookie on a Ducati. The fact that he didn't win feels to me like an opportunity lost because... Clearly, Suzuki has something extra at the Red Bull Ring that it will not have at other tracks, and clearly Yamaha lacks something here that it will have at other tracks. So I don't, I don't love their chances. They're in better shape, but uh, fifty-one—it's a lot. It's really a lot. The, the only thing I will say to counter you a little bit there, Val, is that the other manufacturer that does have something a bit more at this track is also Ducati. Uh, and there is yeah. obviously a huge advantage for them here for, for various reasons to do the track layout and stuff. And I, I just, I get what you're saying completely about Suzuki clearly have an advantage over the Yamaha here. But I think what we saw last year was that the Suzuki maybe has an advantage over the Yamaha at most places. And we need to see how that plays out now for the next few years. It's going to be fascinating. 
um, because it is going to be at a really, really tight end of the season. It's going to be a tighter end of the season than I would have predicted coming into the summer break. Let's put it that way. Agreed. Agreed. So, therefore, gentlemen, have Suzuki now with the squat system to accelerate them out the corners and off the line quickly made a Ducati but this is their one-trick pony circuit and there's only 50 points available because this is, you know, let's be blunt, the, the Red Bull circuit is a bit of a dead cert for a Ducati strong race. We saw it with Dovi. We've seen it yesterday. So they're going to, as Val says, they're going to lose out at the non-Ducati circuits. Mir argued strongly yesterday that they have not gained anything with the right height adjustment system all they've done is level the playing field. It's not that they have suddenly had a, had a huge advantage in one particular area. It's that they were losing out in one particular area at every other race this year. And that now the Suzuki can be a Suzuki again because it doesn't have this huge disadvantage that it had in Assen. Okay, I get that. I get that. So he, really, Suzuki have been like KTM this year. They've been without something technically and now they've got it all of a sudden it comes alive because that's the problem that KTM had with the tyres. So That's a fair analogy, yeah. That's uh, that's thing. So, yeah, that'll be interesting. Good to hear that the mechanics still go out and get stuck in. I hope that nobody at all questions the expenses. <laughs> we like that. We like that. <laughs> uh, we touched on Fabio Quattararo continuing to lead the World Championship by 40 points, 4-0, 40 points, 25 points for a victory. So he's got a buffer of a victory and a second place at the moment in his pocket. He's ahead of still... Juan Zarco, two Frenchmen's one and two, the Blues one and two, should I say. How was he after yesterday? Um, if I can answer my own question quickly, it was as good as a win in my view. Yeah, I think that's pretty much that's pretty much his assessment too. I don't think he said that outright, at least not from from what I was hearing. But it, there was sort of that subtext that this is this is as good a Red Bull Ring result as we could have hoped for. And I, I wrote in Slack, I think, in our work chat after the race that if we were to rerun this race a hundred times, I'm not sure Fabio would have gotten a, a better set of results than he did there. Did surrender a few points to Mir, but otherwise all the other title contenders that you would have expected to take points off them weren't able to do so, even though clearly the underlying race pace of the M1 here isn't, isn't quite there. But it was also just another, another time that Fabio has been desperately impressive this season and super super clutch del delivering at the right moment because I thought he was he was going to be in a bit of trouble when uh Jack Miller latched onto the back of him and it, it, it probably would have been really easy to just let Jack go and maybe let Zarco go too and try to settle for a top five finish to say oh that ain't my day but he really held on there he was really metronomic he was fighting off Miller not letting him get close enough on the straight and eventually Miller tried too hard and he had the crash that I think a lot of us saw coming more the more and more time he spent behind Fabio trying to line up that move I think Fabio forced that crash by being you know by being that metronomic super impressive defensive rider and I think that was just a, a, a cherry on top of a really really good performance arguably Valentin Martin forced the Miller crash because Miller's on the same bike and he's going, hang on a minute, that should be me. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I think it's, you know, from, from a championship standpoint, I think Jack saw how important it was to make sure he gets past Fabio, to make sure that this opportunity to outscore Fabio doesn't get away. And instead, he dropped 16 points to Fabio by ending up in the, in the gravel. It's going to sound really harsh, but I don't think anyone ever really needs to force a Jack Miller mistake. Yeah. That's the problem. Ouch. 
that's the problem. Well, you've said what I think, so well done. Yeah. Um, the, the, just to pick up on what you said earlier, though, I think what we've seen traditionally at the Red Bull Ring is that it's not a Yamaha circuit, but a certain type of Yamaha rider can actually perform at it. Um, we've seen three Yamaha podiums here in the time that we've been coming, two for Fabio, one for Jorge Lorenzo, and they've all come exactly the way that yesterday's came, by, by getting into a rhythm, by being a metronome, uh, and using the strength of the Yamaha and, and, you know, sort of diluting the weakness of it a little bit. So, yeah, um, Quadraro, I'm sure, went into the race knowing that that was the only way he was going to, you know, he's he's a clever guy. He knows what his plan needed to be, and it worked. Early on in the Austrian MotoGP, we had a big crash. There was a ruptured fuel tank, as good as 20-odd litres, pouring all over the circuit. It was well alight. The marshals were trying to put it out after the accident between Danny Pedrosa, who was wildcarding, and Lorenzo Savadori. It, they were trying to put it out. It was running down the hill as a, as a burning river. Should we be concerned how long it took the marshals to put out that fire? In my practical view, they can't do any more when petrol gets going and there's 20 litres. There's not a lot you can do unless you have a fire truck and not every 10 yards can you have a fire truck. Remember the Jos Verstappen Benetton Formula One Germany 1994 pit lane fire? Three litres. Three litres was all that was, and of course it was the vapour that ignited, and off you go. And arguably there's 20 litres. Why does the fuel tank break? Because it's not a bag tank, it's an alley tank. So a bag tank is nigh on indestructible nowadays with the modern technology that is available in, 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 in four-wheel motorsport and aircraft and such like Whereas motorcycle racing, they've still got the tank right in front of the rider and then it sinks underneath the seat. It's difficult to try and, uh, at the moment, put a bag tank in there. But that maybe if it happens again, we're going to have to look into a bag tank solution. Yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not so concerned about the, the length of the firefighting, but mostly just because I'm not, I'm not much of a firefighting expert. And I think as long as it takes, that's as long as it should have taken. And sometimes it's a matter of just luck and how it spreads and stuff like that. I'm more concerned about two other aspects of the crash. The first one is that so many people came up on the, on the Pedrosa accident so blind. And it, it looked really quite fortunate that he didn't get caught up by one of the by one of the approaching bikes and it, it looked completely unavoidable that one of the bikes would tag his his machine that was the first part that I, I know that's also the case at many motorbike tracks where you have that but the, the, the turn three is just something not quite right with it for for bikes it's it's just worrying this uphill blind sort of thing it makes me nervous but we've seen motorcycle accidents where there's a crocodile and number one moves, number two moves, and it's getting closer as number three, number, and then number five rider has, he, he just can't get out of the way. Yeah. Is I, that I, it? Yeah, I think, I don't know. Should they, like the yellow flag system, I guess, needs to be revamped, but you still need to be so fast reacting to it. I think there's, there's smarter people than me trying to work out a, a fix. The other thing that worried me before we move on to defer the things about this accident is Lorenzo Savadori was clearly injured, was limping, was not not looking in great fitness. I don't understand how he got declared fit to rejoin the race. I'm thankful he didn't because now he's what? He's undergoing ankle surgery? 
how could he have, if he needed ankle surgery, why why was he fit to return to the bike, which he thankfully didn't do? Uh, I don't. I think that probably there's some protocols there that need looking at. Yeah, Mark Marquez was allowed to ride on Saturday at Jerez last year. I mean, really, Simon. Uh, so first of all, um, on the firefighting thing, um, I. Uh, like Val says, I'm not an expert in firefighting. I would be much more concerned about it if I was a four-wheeled motorsport journalist than a two-wheeled motorsport journalist because they, they, there's not the same necessity, never the same necessity to put out a fire at a motorbike race. You're not in a box, Simon. Exactly, exactly. Um, do want to throw out there, because um, it's kind of gone completely under the radar, credit to Cal Crutchlow who did admit that he was at the back of the field and that, that he had practically stopped at the scene of the accident to make sure there wasn't a rider in the flames because he didn't think any marshal would dare have a dive into them and he was going to have a go if needed to be. So fair play to Crutchlow for that. Um, Quote of the podcast. That's it. Done. On the on the medical front, I'll pick that up next. Um, Next. <laughs> The, the standard of the medicals that MotoGP riders are put through are a joke. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. They There is not the due care and attention that is needed to assess these things. Um, it's not just not just the Mark Marquez uh, crash last year where he was allowed to ride again after surgery. It's things like, you know, when Mark Marquez crashes, falls through the gravel trap, rips the visor off his helmet, runs back to the garage in the back door, changes helmets and gets back on a bike before any doctors had the chance to look at him. The protocol is wrong and it needs to be fixed, but there's no impetus to fix it here. Um, how Savadori was past fit. The guy also looked pretty concussed. Um, and there's no way in the time between the accident and him being declared fit that they had time to do a proper concussion protocol. So, you know... It's going to go on and on and on. I thought the Marquez accident might do something to change it, but it seems it hasn't done anything to change it at all. Uh, also, our, our complaints are partly motivated by the fact we really like Lorenzo and would really <laughs> not want to see him exactly. get beaten up. Exactly. And 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 then thirdly, um, there is something about the Red Bull ring that makes it not a track suitable for MotoGP. I said it at the start of the podcast. I think it's to do with it's it's not that it's a bad circuit and it's not that it's particularly a dangerous circuit if you're in a car but I just think it's a circuit that was designed entirely with cars in mind and that that causes things like different sight lines and different different types of accidents different types of runoff needed you know one of the problems that the the riders cited yesterday whenever I asked a, a few of them about specific dangers at this track was turn one and how people, you know, we saw the Mark Marquez, uh, Alex Espagaro incidents because people know you can go into turn one harder than necessary because there's asphalt runoff on the exit. And asphalt runoff is something that is entirely for car racing, not for motorbike racing. So at a bike-specific circuit, that would be a gravel trap. Yeah, and the car guys, as you may have heard on the outside of your radar, Simon, they're getting fed up with tarmac runoff, or the journalists yeah. are, you know, particularly Karen Chanduk, who is a very erudite, mm -hmm. clever, insightful commentator on Sky F1. Um, he says, you know, th this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. There's got to be... It was fine when it was introduced 
cars, of course, flat bottom, they would skit like yeah. a tea tray over the gravel. I get that. R motorcycle riders would then slide, 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 hit the gravel and roll. Um, there's just got to be a there halfway has to be, house There has somewhere. to be a technology that works. Either there's a technology that works for both yeah. or you create circuits that are predominantly for one or the other. You know, and and that's the problem with the red bull ring, which is which is why I said at the start that it's insane that if there is one circuit on the calendar that can find a solution to this problem, it's this one. It's Red Bull. They launched the start of yesterday's race by bringing their own air force to the circuit. You know what I mean? <laughs> they have the money that's needed to fix these problems. Um, the riders were pretty fuming this weekend because they were promised that we would come here this year and turn two and turn three would look different. And they don't. They look exactly the same as they did last year. And as a result, we ended up with another accident involving that turn two, turn three sets. The, the thing is, no one thinks that the second half of the circuit is dangerous either. No one thinks there's anything wrong with turn four through to the last corner. It is literally just... The bit from turn one to turn three. I will go to my grave remembering the words from Simon Crafar last year after the huge accident that we had at the top of the hill, technically turn three. Um, whenever you've got 200 mile an hour to a dead stop, there's going to be an accident, okay? There is going to be an accident. If you're 200 miles an hour to a kind of 90 mile an hour corner, there's less speed to scrub off and there's a bit of leeway because by definition of it being a 90 mile an hour corner, it's it's an open radius. Uh, this is a beyond 90 degree corner. It's about 180, 100 degrees or so. So, <laughs> you know, in rallying, square right. And you've got to break from 200 to, what's their speed through there? 35? Absolutely. Yeah. This is probably the slowest corner in the circuit. Uh, in, the no, in the season. Oh, yeah. In uh, the season. Sorry, yeah. that's what I you, meant. Yeah. You've got to go from 200 and you've got to break at exactly the right meter. And at 200 miles an hour, I don't know how many meters per second you're doing, but it'll be a lot. And these are the best in the world. They can do it all day, every day. You and I could only do three corners at that speed and crash and be to hospital for a month. <laughs> they are the, They are genius people. But even they make a mistake. So that's what Simon was saying last year, Simon Crafar. It's it's the speed going into a square right. If they do the old Osterreich circuit where they go turn one but keep going, I'd like to yep. believe that with his money, Mr. Matisic will be able, with his money, he's got all the money in the world, to... to There's to, no to, problem to, there. To, to, But all he's got to do is get permission from the locals, and that's a bit of a battle. I've got a theory he'll just win it. He will just get over it somehow. And then the two square corners have gone out of the circuit and it's a bit more majestic and, and such like that. That's the natural solution. It's, the, it's you know, that got to, me. to be the solution. And then you've got turn three, which is just a beautiful, fast right-hander. And it, it's yeah, perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. Fingers crossed. You know, if anybody can throw money at a problem, my goodness me. But, but, but we can't keep saying oh, hopefully we'll get the planning permission and keep coming back to the circuit the way it is right now in the interim. But the Riders' Commission, they knew that those corners weren't done before they got there but, on Wednesday. But the Riders' Commission is powerless. That's the thing. The Riders' Commission is a forum for them to make their comments. It's not something that takes action. The right. That's the problem. That's the fundamental flaw. Well, in that case, the Riders' Commission needs to stick together and go on strike. 
But, but then sportsmen, yeah, they've all got agendas. Money, money, salaries, wages, contract, demands, yeah. pressures, new contracts. It, it needs to be a, rather than a rather than a commission. Yeah. It needs to be a, a union, basically. But yeah. That's complicated. Uh, you touched on Alasius Bargaro and Mark Marquez. We had two starts and two Alasius Bargaro, Mark Marquez incidents. I watched that second incident and I shook my head and I thought I, I could almost see the anger coming out of Alasius Bargaro's crash helmet. And we were watching from the helicopter. Uh, the, the second incident was, I think, a lot more understandable, but... I'd still also pin that one probably on Mark having reviewed it. And the first one was 100% Mark combining all together to what I would I would think is the most rubbish MotoGP race by Mark Marquez I've ever seen. Uh, it's, it's really, really low on my list. I think I'm also really quite annoyed that he didn't take responsibility for the... I mean, he did sort of take responsibility for the first mistake, but he played down... Alicia's anger and also mentioned that Jan Mir hit him later in the lap there's you know the approach he had two chances to approach turn one at the start and in both cases he made a mess and in both cases he severely primarily he severely compromised someone else's race uh and then he also made a mess of was it turn one or I think it was turn one also or maybe it was turn three it was one of those later in the race I think he was riding like he was trying way too hard to overcome a lack of performance that he wasn't anticipating. And I thought it was just a, I, we so rarely get to say this about Mark. So I, maybe I'm sort of relishing the moment and overcorrecting that. I was really disappointing. I, I was not impressed. There is a bit of a history of when Mark Marquez is under pressure because he doesn't quite have the last edge of performance he needs. He gets a bit wild on track. And I think that's, that's exactly what it was. He, he tried to deflect, but to deflect from it by saying, oh, well, they do it to me, isn't quite cutting it whenever one rider does it to him once, one rider does it to him once, and then he does it to ten riders at once. Um, you know, he... No, two wrongs don't well, make a right. Yeah, it's not even two wrongs don't make a right. It's that the, the other two wrongs come from two different people. It's six wrongs from yeah. six different people versus six wrongs from one person. That that doesn't balance, I, um, and that's one the, wrong doesn't justify a pattern of wrongs. Exactly. I would also there say. we go. That's yeah. it. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's uh, I think Mark was under pressure yesterday, and that's how we see. That's how we tell that Mark was under pressure when we see results like that. Was he fitter? That's a hard question to answer. He didn't really talk about it much this weekend. Um, but at the same time, he didn't really seem to struggle with it much this weekend. I think he he has to be. You know, the guys had five weeks off to rest and recover and to rehab and to exercise and whatever. He has to be fitter. But um, I, I don't know for certain one way or another how much of an improvement we've seen. Let's put it that way. Down. It's it's also just like it's also weird to see other Hondas be quite close to Mark at the Red Bull ring, which you know it's not it's not so much his circuit, but it's a circuit where he always seems to punch above Honda's weight, which did did not happen this weekend, and that's that sort of suggests to me that the fitness battle is is still ongoing, but I've, races like this and moves like this and angering Alesh for no particularly good re reason or good benefit. Don't see how that really benefits the the road to recovery. 
It's also worth noting that Aleish was only partly pissed off at Mark Marquez and largely pissed off again at the FIM stewards. And I get why. Um, his argument yesterday after the race was that the stewards should not be punishing crashes. They should be causing the actions that cause crashes, whether or not they result in crashes. Um, and yeah, it could easily have caused a crash yesterday, what Mark did to him, especially the first time round. But we didn't even get an incident under investigation on the screen. You know, that if that had been a Moto 3 collision, we would have seen penalty potentially there. And yet we saw nothing. Uh, and you have to, you know, understand why Alicia was so frustrated in asking why that was. Uh, to, to stick up a little bit for Freddie Spencer and company, which I, I don't think we do very often on this pod, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to in this particular case. I think the, the problem of judging the consequences rather than the, the actual event is it's widespread all over every single motorsport category when it comes to investigation. So that there's just something philosophical there that we haven't quite gotten over a figure out as a whole motorsport community, in my opinion. But that said, yes, I would have also really liked to see that placed under investigation, at least, because it clearly severely inconvenienced Aleish before also inconveniencing him after the red flag. We touched on Cal Crutchlow and the fact that he was going to jump into the flames if there was a rider in there, uh, standing in for Franco Morbidelli at Patronus Yamaha. Good to see him back, I'm sure. Good to see him on the grid, but going through the motions, am I being hard? It's not his fault. I'm not having a go at him, but what can the poor guy do? He, he did the job he was there to do, I think. Um, everybody in the paddock is convinced that he's going to pull a crutch low and do something quite special at Silverstone. Um, but that's a few races away yet, and in the interim, he's getting back up to speed on the slowest bike on the grid at one of the fastest circuits of the year. Um I think we we basically we saw Cal do what we expected Cal to do yesterday. What we really expected was at a Red Bull circuit to see the KTM's a little bit further up the order. Uh, Miguel Oliveira had a huge whack in practice, hurt his hands. Then he had a chunk out the tire. Been a while since I've heard a, f a chunk falling out of a Michelin, or have I missed something? So. Um... First of all, the, the crash that Oliveira had at the start of the weekend at turn three again, um, that is actually the perfect demonstration of how slow turn three is because it seems like what happened was he came around the corner, the traction control switched off, and he high-sided himself to the moon. The reason the traction control switches off is because it switches off below a certain speed so that riders can get out of the gravel trap should they run on. I don't believe it. That demonstrates how slow turn three is. Uh, that the traction control and they, they had to like tinker with yeah. the, the metrics for the rest of the weekend and, and dial it down a little bit um, the Michelin thing Michelin have put their hands up and said yeah we had a faulty tyre uh, the pictures of the tyre are bad really really bad um, and, and it's the first time we've seen one like that recently but it's also the only reason we saw it is because Miguel Oliveira's dad took a picture of it and posted it on Facebook and it was there long enough before he was told to delete it for other people to get it. So that's the only reason that we actually saw it because normally that's the sort of things that you're not allowed to do at all. Um, but bad tyres are 
a really, really frequent complaint at the minute, it has to be said. Uh, Bagnaya yesterday said he had a bad tyre. Vinales said he had a bad tyre. Mark Marquez said he had a bad tyre. And Jorge Martin said he had a bad tyre until the red flag and he switched. So, you know, it is not an unusual complaint. I can name a dozen riders across the grid who will say, yeah, well, you know, this race or this race or this race, the tyre wasn't good enough. It it isn't when they say it's bad. It's not bad necessarily, like Oliveira's, which was an exceptional case. But they, you know, they have systems now. They have ways of putting a number on tire degradation, and when you use the same bike in the same settings and the same conditions, and tire degradation is double what it was with a previous tire, you have to say. It's not, you know, it's not riders making excuses. Yeah. For, for what it's worth, I just, my two cents is that the picture being taken down is actually a little more damning than the picture itself. But also, it's just, you know, it's beyond just the tire thing, which I agree it's a complaint we hear basically every weekend from one or another source. Although I would say there are some guys with who it never comes up, whether that's because their bikes are more more adaptable to that sort of thing or whether that's just because they don't bring it up i think hard to say exactly uh but for, for ktm i was a i tell you it was a really disappointing race because honestly i expected a 50 point double weekend from miguel Oliveira, and that went out the window the second he he got hurt i think but also bender's qualifying's have to be a, a, a serious concern right now or at least priority number one because it's clear that on sunday he's reliably able to to get the job done but there's only so much you can do when you qualify this poorly and he's been qualifying poorly for for a fair while and if if that's a ceiling somehow which i don't think it is if this is his qualifying ceiling that's a serious problem if it's not well work on it that's that's your priority i think what he hasn't got a problem with is the last lap he's a genius hmm. <laughs> yeah. he's just fantastic he, he he is somehow aggressive and clean at the same time, which is a very unique combination. He's superb. But it helps when you start out of position. It helps when you're overtaking bikes that aren't supposed to be as quick as yours at that point. I, yeah, I, yeah, but but yeah. on the last lap, whenever he yeah, was overtaking, yeah, yeah, he no, was overtaking a, bikes as good as his. That that is different. You, you'd rather you'd rather have a rider who's great at Sunday and not so good on Saturday than the other way around, too. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. yeah, ask Yamaha. But you're using up his, you're using yep. up tire, you're using up mm -hmm. the front because you're putting it on its nose, you're ragging it, just the edges and all sorts of. Stuff. But you know, fourth is what they salvaged, so there's at least something. Uh, and the, the the Pedroza bike looked great, oh, wasn't it? it ever? Was a, yeah, <laughs> it was a real, real shades of you know of the Mikakalia wildcard appearances, and I think the two things that are suggested there is one is that Danny's kept working hard and kept himself in great riding shape well done and the other one is that what he's had on the bike is competitive and that's you know that's got to be really really good sign for 2022 because when Calio showed up and looked competitive well we see what that turned into now so just take yeah. us through this Raul Fernandez tech three kerfuffle because not everybody will have written uh, will have read the story on the website so we have known for a while that Raul Fernandez is a contract for next year with KTM already. With KTM, not with a team. So a contract that kept him within the KTM family. 
We've known for a while that there was a fifty thousand euro buyout clause 500. in the contract. Five hundred, sorry, thousand euro buyout clause no. that if anyone else wanted him, they'd have to fork up that cash to get it. And we know that Yamaha have been interested in him for quite a long time for one of the Petronas Yamaha seats. It seems like what happened over the weekend is that after a long series of negotiations, Yamaha eventually agreed to fork up the cash. Uh, Fernandez's management, which incredibly is basically KTM royalty, because his son, his manager is the son of Heinz Kindergartner, the double KTM, uh, double Austrian motocross world champion, their first big superstar. So he's practically a member of the family. Went to KTM to say, Yamaha have agreed to pay the cash. We're ready to buy ourselves out of the contract. And KTM has said, well, we don't give your permission to buy your way out of the contract. And then immediately issued a press release saying that Raul Fernandez would be writing for Tech 3 next year without telling Tech 3, Fernandez, Danilo Petrucci, or Icarlacona. Um, And as a result, basically everyone is peeved at the situation. Fernandez gave some very harshly worded interviews afterwards saying basically, well, he was straight up asked, are you writing where you want to be writing next year? And he said, no, let's leave it at that. Um, so yeah, so Tech 3 have two writers who don't want to be writing for them because they've been sacked in a really unpleasant way. Tech 3 are pissed off at KTM because they announced uh, their writer lineup for next year without even bothering to uh, tell KTM. To tell Tech 3. KTM in the middle a, of a session. To tell Tech 3 in the middle of a session. Tech 3 have a writer for next season who doesn't want to be riding for them. KTM are stuck with a writer that doesn't want to be riding with them. And Yamaha still don't have anyone to put in a Petronas Yamaha seat for next season. What a disaster. All the best sports stories are sports stories where everybody's unhappy with everybody. <laughs> I should say two, two major points for me there. The first one being I've never, ever heard in any sport a buyout clause that you need permission from the team to activate. That's one of the most, like, that's just a transfer. You're just making a deal then. Why would you put that in the contract if you need permission? Don't get it. Sounds sounds weird. Can I just jump in there? Yeah. I was. I thought there was a, no, a zero missing out of 500,000 euros. 500,000 euros in MotoGP with a budget yeah. of 50 million is not a lot of money. I would put it at three, four. Five hundred yeah, five hundred in I, the in the context is not that much money. But you have the benefit of the hindsight of the Moto Two races this season that have shown that Raul Fernandez is actually worth <laughs> all that much. Which I mean, I think yeah, five hundred is probably on the low side, but you, you can never be that confident until the goods are delivered in Moto Two, which they were immediately in spectacular, unprecedented fashion. But also the second bit is I don't I don't understand what the end game there is because I don't I I can't imagine having a rider ride for you who's who doesn't want to be there. Like I I understand the contractual mechanics of it. I understand that it's you know it's it's possible that ultimately Ralph Fernandez calms down and just, you know, shows up, goes to work. But usually there a resolution comes. I don't know. I it's, I I think there's a fairly straightforward answer to that question, Val. It's because it's better to have an unhappy Raul Fernandez on a KTM than a happy Raul Fernandez on a Yamaha. Yeah, but... Even if you're not getting the best deal, you're stopping your opposition from getting it. 
You know, why did Repsol Honda hire uh, Jorge Lorenzo? Was it because they thought he was going to be fast exactly. on Honda? Not necessarily. Is it because they thought that he was going to be dangerously fast on a Patronus Yamaha? Absolutely. That Jorge Lorenzo in a Patronus Yamaha could have been the first ever satellite MotoGP champion. He's the one person I think could have done it with that bike and everything. So, you know, so for that reason alone, I see why KTM have done it. But the, the other thing is, Raul Fernandez is 20 years old. He's a, basically a teenager. He is hot-headed and right now he's a bit pissed off. But if he gets on that bike next year and has a podium like Jorge Martin did in the second race, it'll all be forgotten about and it'll be just back to happy families. And then he's on a route to a multi-million pound factory deal in, in two years' time and everything will be rosy. I think the thing is that, um, ultimately I agree with you in that it's in everybody's interests but Yamaha to keep... But Yamaha's to keep Ralph Fernandez of the Patronus Yamaha because that could be really, really bad in the long term. But <laughs> yeah. I think this is going to be a really interesting test of like rider power and those sort of dynamics. Because if he really, really genuinely had his head turned by Yamaha, then I'm I'm just not sure how you repair that. And I guess I guess we'll find out. Hmm. One thing that will, sorry, Toby, one thing that will repair that I think more than anything is maybe putting him into Hervé Poncharal's team rather than, it would be different if he was going to the factory team. Hervé will give him a bit of love and attention and that will help things. And I would imagine that the Hervé love and attention will start immediately. Hervé will already be going to find him on Sunday afternoons to give him a hug and tell him what a great job he's done today. And You know, he's a smart guy, the, 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 the wily old Frenchman. When people sign contracts, they sign them because that's the best thing available at the time. And when Fernandez signed a KTM contract, whoever his manager was at the time, he thought it was a good idea. It's like people getting married. I quite, I quite like you. I quite, I quite like to spend the rest of my life with you. And sometimes it goes wrong, unfortunately, and a terrible thing happens, and it's divorce. But uh, you know that, that that's a that's a huge commitment, obviously. Whereas a Moto2 KTM slash MotoGP carrot contract is two, three years. And then you can go out and find another, quote, wife to go and dance with, girlfriend, wife to go. But they're naughty because that's the deal. You've got to, you've kind of, kind of stick with it. Um, and if it's tight, if it's a tight deal and the management is good and everybody agrees with it, then it's watertight. It was a watertight contract for two years with Bradley Smith at KTM. It nearly came to a grinding halt after half 70% of a season, but it continued to the full twenty to, to full two-year deal because it was watertight. So it's the old story. You only need a contract when there's an argument, unfortunately. Um, I think it'll ride out is my kind of gut. We haven't heard the end of this, but I think it'll ride out. I'm just going to throw out one of my old chestnuts at this point and say that I've, I've said for years, cycling has a, a, a written rule where any contract signed before the 1st of August is null and void. I think MotoGP should have the same rule. I haven't heard you say that before. Okay, that's interesting. I like that. I like okay. that. Yeah, that's yeah. one of my old ones. Yeah, I think it, it does no harm to anyone and it gives people a chance to find their feet with less pressure. And so it's effectively a transfer window. In a way, yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't see any problem with that. I don't think it would... I, I, yeah. I think if you looked at the current MotoGP field um, and looked back a few years at what that policy would have changed, 
it would have essentially meant that a few kids who've been in and washed out would have held on a bit longer and I don't think it would have materially harmed anyone that you said you know would have not deserved it and also you know people signing contracts at Hareth May the 1st I've said it before psychologically oh blimey somebody I've just signed a deal for another team next year they're going to pay me four times the money which I won't see until January the 1st next year, but it's May the 1st. And psychologically, is that just a tenth of a second off for the rest of the year on the other bike? Is it, oh, I've got my pot of gold coming. Do you see what I mean? I mean, if you ask riders, they'll say it's a tenth of a second plus, or minus, I should say, because it gives them, you know, peace of mind. I don't know. No, I meant minus. I I meant off. I meant meant slower, sorry, Val, slower. Yeah, 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 I I get you. But it, 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 you could sort of see it go going either way. Like, for instance, uh, Raul didn't look quite on it this weekend. Maybe that had something to do with the, with the current situation. Maybe that's just... Uh, like, I guess it also it really just depends on, on who who's signing the contract and what, what, what their priority is and how, how able they are to keep peace of mind, let's, basically. Let's not forget that Yamaha are currently still negotiating their way out of a two-year rider contract halfway through the contract that came into force on the 1st of January 2021 to run until the 31st of December 2022, but was announced in February 2019. They signed the deal with Maverick Vinales at Sepang last year at the testing for this season. Sorry, 2020. So a year before the contract, 11 months before the contract came into effect. We're halfway through the deal and they're currently trying to find a way out of it. Less than halfway through. Let's, let's also not forget, let's also not forget that KTM has very recent ex- experience of a rider being so unhappy that they first had yeah. to cut a two-year deal short, make it a one-year deal, and then had to just pay him to not ride because he was bumming out the team because he was so unhappy with the bike. So... Yeah. And as I touched on with Bradley, and I don't know this for sure, but it's my hunch, was, you know, KTM, it wasn't going well with Bradley in the middle of 17. Mm-hmm. But the 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 management of Bradley Smith said, no, 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 we're not leaving. So there was 18 months the other way. The yeah. rider was forced to be in the team, and the team were a bit, all right. Yeah. Bradley thing was weird because he he actually got quite a bit better once it became clear that Zarco yeah. was going to replace him mm-hmm. and not not Paul. Mm. So you know it just it works in so many different fascinating ways. Mm. But it's also it's also just an, sometimes a very unpleasant situation for one side or both sides. We heard before the Austrian Grand Prix that Valentino Rossi was going to stop riding MotoGP at the end of this year. Nine races down, and now eight races down. Um, any other fallout over the initial flurry that we had on Thursday of Valentino's retirement? Not really. No, it kind of came and it went. Um, and his results at the weekend showed why it came and it went, because he was pretty anonymous for the entire race. Um, and I think we'll see that through the rest of the year. I think there will be moments when it's celebrated that it's his last, you know, there's no way it's not going to be celebrated that it's his last race at Mugello or Mizano, yeah. for example. But I think with the exception of Mizano and Valencia, it's it's going to be a quiet second half to the season for Valentino. 
Yeah, I think I think the, the the things that we really just learned from like we we all know why he's going. That's because the just the pace isn't quite there anymore. And I think every every single thing that's gone on in regards to that is like if for instance it sounds like VR forty six was a much bigger option than I think most of us considered, but ultimately what decided it is that the pace, you know, isn't quite there. Uh and yeah, and this weekend showed the pace isn't quite there, and there's no reason to believe that another extra year of putting yourself through the the all the difficulties and all the hardships of a of a MotoGP season, there's there's no reason to believe why that would have been different on a on a Ducati. So ultimately when I put it like that, it seems like a really, really easy choice and a really obvious solution. I just want him to be safe and not injure himself in these last eight Grand Prix after oh, after yeah. Not even tens of thousands of racing kilometers, hundreds of thousands of racing kilometers and testing and eight hour and, and everything. Somebody somewhere, please, if you're listening and you've got nothing to do because you've unfortunately broken your leg and you're stuck on the sofa or you're stuck, you know what I mean? If you've got time, can you kind of guesstimate out of all the Grand Prix since Shah Alarm 1996 to where we are now, bolt on about another... Simon will come up with a figure and he'll tweet it. I don't know, 2,000 kilometers of testing that they used to do pre-season. Bolt that onto the Wikipedia page and and the Grand Prix and the qualifying and how many... Somebody would get it within about 400, 500 kilometers. And I tell you what, if he hasn't got to the moon, I'm disappointed. <laughs> somebody somewhere will, will, will tell us what it is. Uh, by the way, do let us know where you are listening around the world. Keep in touch with us through Twitter, at Toby Moody, at Denkmit, which is Simon, at VK Harunshi, which is V-K-H-R-O-O-U-N-Z-H-I-Y. If you go to the race's Twitter, you will see Valentin's username in there, together with uh, Simon's, which is some... I mostly tweet football, so honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure how great an idea that is. <laughs> well, just tweet Valentin something or other, because he's in Moscow. Simon's yeah, out... just send him a beer about yeah, Chelsea. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Valentin's in Moscow. Simon's outside the track, and I'm in the UK. And modern technology is a wonderful thing that we can do these podcasts podcast where we are and then we can within about sometimes an hour sometimes six hours get the podcast uploaded thanks to claire cottingham who does all the editing thanks to glenn freeman back in the base and get it all sorted i think it's a wonderful bit of technology i love it i'm never going to have another reason to to unleash this story on the pods but when i was doing i think thailand moto gp and i i went to to cal's there was it was I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I think uh, either all of my other clothes were soaked or I just made an, an interesting wardrobe decision. But I was walking around the paddock in a, in a Chelsea shirt, basically a football replica Chelsea shirt. And I went to Cal and his reactions, why the hell are you wearing that? Basically, he basically laughed at me for, for showing up in a, in a Chelsea jersey. So, yeah. <laughs> Not, not a big Chelsea fan, I don't think. Or maybe just thinks that it's weird for a journalist to be showing up like he's Frank Lampard or Eden Hazard or something, which I take the point. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's good fun. So uh, let us know where you're watching, uh, listening. Freudian slip. I've done too much TV. Did you notice? Let us know where you're listening around the world. I'm watching these two guys on my screen. Uh, they've unfortunately got to look at me. So let us know where you are. Keep in touch with the-race.com. Do subscribe, do like, and do leave us a rating for our podcast. In the meantime, from myself, Toby Moody, Valentin Harunchi, and Simon Patterson, we look forward to the second Austrian MotoGP race, and we'll record our podcast the day after. Speak to you all very soon. Yeah.